Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. In today's podcast, I speak with Duncan Ryukin Williams about his new book, American Sutra, a story of faith and freedom in the Second World War, published by Harvard University Press. American Sutra shows how religious differences underlay the injustices that Japanese Americans suffered during the Second World War. It is an inspiring look at how Japanese Americans forged a space in American identity where it's possible for one to be Japanese, Buddhist, and American. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Duncan, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, thank you, Alex, for having me. I would like to begin by asking you what motivated you to write this book. Uh, so this book, American Sutra, uh, about Buddhism and the World War II Japanese-American uh, internment, uh, you know, began for me a little over 17 years ago when, uh, you know, as somebody who actually has no family connection to this story about the World War II Japanese-American uh, internment, I had uh, stumbled into my uh, uh, professor's office. He had recently passed away, Professor Masatoshi Nagatomi at Harvard University. Um, yeah, I had gone in to help his wife uh, clean his office after he had passed, and uh, not knowing anything, being from Japan, uh, about the Japanese-American kind of World War II uh, uh, experience, I came across this set of documents that uh, was clearly written in the war, uh, during World War II, and talked about a place called Manzanar, one of the 10 large uh, uh, incarceration uh, camps for Japanese-Americans uh, during that, uh, that period. And, and it basically, it was a it was a diary and a set of sermons uh, that he had given on Sundays in that uh, internment camp. And uh, he had, uh, I guess, left it. And his son, the professor, Masatoshi Nagatomi, had kept it very carefully in his office. And, uh, but, you know, having never shared it publicly with even his own wife. And so uh, this book began uh, when I translated a portion of that diary and some of those sermons for uh, his widow. And uh, I started to get curious about, you know, why were there, you know, Buddhist priests in these camps? And uh, were there other families who also experienced uh, being uh, taken either right after Pearl Harbor or after the mass incarceration began in February 42. Uh, I wanted to learn more. And as I was doing that, other families who had diaries written by their father or uncle uh, in, written in Japanese uh, started to approach me 
uh, and asked me to translate uh, their diaries. And uh, I thought, you know, that's something I could do for people. And as I started translating those diaries, I also learned, you know, I tried to read everything I could about the Japanese American internment, every dissertation and book and article out there. And I started conducting some oral histories, about 120 in total. And uh, this book took me, you know, from conception to completion, about 17 years. Uh, but it was inspired by uh, something that was made clear in these early uh, diaries, that these people were uh, not disloyal to America, not a threat to national security, as so many of the intelligence agencies at that time deemed this community, but rather they were people who were trying to find a way to be both Buddhist and American at the same time. And uh, I wanted to basically find a way to tell their story. So that's, that's how the book came together. And the title of the book is American Sutra. Can you tell me what the meaning behind the title is? Sure. So, you know, that concept of being able to be both fully 100% Buddhist and 100% American, uh, that at that time was certainly not considered a, uh, a given. Uh, the presumption of to be American was to be, you know, racially white or to be American was to be religiously Christian was such a kind of commonplace thought that the idea that you could be both Buddhist and American at the same time, that juxtaposition seemed contradictory. And I wanted to get at that idea a little bit by putting the words American and Sutra next to each other. And because this is a, you know, uh, uh, your listeners will probably be, you know, familiar with in Buddhist studies, the, uh, the idea of a sutra or, or of a text that, uh, contains the teachings and uh, 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 the words of the Buddha, uh, I wanted to also use that term uh, in a more expansive uh, way. Uh, because although there are a lot of different references to different teachings uh, of the Buddha that people use to help them survive that very difficult moment in their lives, it was also... Um, uh, a move to try to think about the idea of the sutra as a uh, ma manifestation or enactment or a realization of Buddhist ideas and not just about what words the Buddha gave that are like uh, remaining in a text. And I start the book with this uh, poem uh, by a Rinzai Zen monk, uh, Nyogen Senzaki, and it starts with him uh, uh, reflecting on the fact that he has been forcibly removed by the United States military uh, into one of these camps. Uh, and he, he writes a poem uh, that, that begins, Thus have I heard, the army ordered all Japanese faces to be evacuated from the city of Los Angeles. This homeless monk has nothing but a Japanese face. He stayed here 13 springs, meditating with all faces from all parts of the world, and studied the teachings of Buddha with them. Wherever he goes, he may form other groups, inviting friends of all faces, beckoning them with the empty hands of Zen. And he wrote this poem, you know, from a, a, uh, uh, 
a situation in which he found himself suddenly evicted, uh, having been given a week to 10 days to, to pack up what he could to, uh, as he's ordered out into one of these camps. And he's talking about the army taking everybody with any kind of Japanese heritage in them, uh, in his case, away from Los Angeles, where he had uh, developed for 13 years prior to the war a, you know, a multiracial Buddhist uh, Zen community. And, but he begins that poem with this, uh, with this phrase, thus have I heard, uh, which is, of course, uh, another phrase that I think folks already in Buddhist studies would uh, recognize as the preamble to uh, uh, you know, a classic Buddhist uh, sutra. And so, you know, I think the idea that, uh, you know, evam misutam, that, 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 that thus have I heard, uh, that, that this, this is not necessarily a preamble to a, you know, classic Indic text and, and, and but rather that the, the, the experience of being able to see Buddhism or see lived life as the ground to practice Buddhism, to me that was an interesting insight that this man just had uh, uh, and wrote a poem in that manner. And so a lot of the book is structured around this idea that, that the lived experience and the, and the, diff- the hardships of 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 being able to practice Buddhism in a place that has told you that you don't belong, that that your religion is not welcome here, uh, that that is actually a ground where you know Buddhist ideas, Buddhist practice, Buddhist community uh, is is very much under uh, challenge, and uh, people like Nyogen Senzaki and many others I bring up in the book. I think found a way to to enact and embody and, and and make real some of these Buddhist ideas in the most difficult of circumstances. So that's that, that's kind of what, how I came at uh, the, the the title American Sutra. And you speak about the many uh, like Senzaki who just really show amazing character in extremely stressful and, and dangerous times. <clears throat> and I think the book. Um, that's one of the strengths of the book is, is just showing all of these people that really, uh, that really showed so much character and, and so much perseverance uh, during this era. It was really a joy to, to read about these people that often uh, don't get mentioned in, in history books. Um, I want to just step back and talk about the, the, the context um, of the Japanese in America. So can you kind of give us an overview or tell us about the history of Japanese in America and when they started migrating to the U.S., uh, why they came and where they primarily went? Sure. So at the time of Pearl Harbor, uh, the Japanese uh, uh, community, uh, you know, both uh, the immigrants themselves from Japan, uh, as well as their often called Issei, and then their second generation or Nisei children who were uh, by birthright citizenship American citizens. Uh, There were about 150,000 such people living in the islands of Hawaii and about 110,000 such citizens living in uh, uh, the west coast of the United States. 
and uh, a s- smaller number of uh, people of Japanese heritage living uh, east of the east of the Rocky Mountains. And so we have this concentration on the Hawaiian Islands and on the west coast of the United States. Um, and uh, people came as you know labor migrants uh, uh, starting in 1868, uh, the first group. Uh, to come from Japan to the Hawaiian Islands. And as I said, that 150,000-person community, by the time of December 1941, when Pearl Harbor happened, uh, that that growth was centered around the sugar plantation industry in Hawaii and in California, Washington, and uh, Oregon, the West Coast of the United States. People worked on farms. They were, you know, just like Mexicans and today, like a lot of migrant farm workers, a uh, lot of people working in the fishing industry, uh, a lot of people working uh, on the railroads. Uh, and so it was a community that uh, uh, came for labor migration, uh, but brought with them uh, their Buddhist faith. And in fact, on, de- on December 40, uh you know, in, in December 1941, uh, the Japanese-American community constituted the largest uh, Buddhist community in uh, the United States. And uh, two-thirds of, of the community were, as I said earlier, were Nisei or kind of U.S.-born American citizens. But over two-thirds of the overall community uh, were Buddhist. And so in terms of religious identification... Uh, it was a community that, uh, you know, initially worked on these plantations and they built Buddhist temples right on the plantations or right in the farming areas of California, uh, but eventually uh, began to uh, develop Buddhist temples in the major urban areas like Seattle and Los Angeles and San Francisco and what are called uh, Japan towns. And uh, before the war, uh, there were about 10 large Japan towns all up and down the West Coast of the United States. And so uh, they came, uh, they initially only men and later women, sometimes as they call them picture brides, but uh, these women that uh, were uh, c- coming to the United States through arranged marriage, and they started to have children. And as they did that, uh, the temple, the Buddhist temple that they would first have formed became family and community, you know, centers and hubs of life where uh, because of the racist kind of policies around immigration, around land ownership, around uh, naturalization and citizenship and so forth, they found that often they couldn't fit into mainstream society and that the temple became this kind of refuge for them, uh, not only as a spiritual and religious uh, center, but as a social and communal one. And so by the time of the Pearl Harbor attack in December 1941, uh, you know, we had hundreds of these temples all along the West Coast and the Hawaii uh, of many different denominations of Buddhism um, that reflected, uh, you know, the community that had come from, uh, from Japan. And by the time Pearl Harbor uh, attack had happened, uh, quite a few of that second generation, primarily English-speaking or bilingual uh, generation, uh, that they had created certain kinds of uh, uh, ways in which 
the Buddhist temples also uh, not wasn't just about you know maintaining Japanese cultural identity and religious identity, but also as a vehicle for Americanization. And they found that uh, just like every other immigrant group, whether it's you know Norwegian Lutherans or Irish Catholics or uh, any other uh, group, that that that, that the these houses of worship became a really important part for social integration, uh, as well as maintaining some aspects of their ancestral homeland. And so they became these hybrid places, uh, both in terms of ethnicity, uh, Japanese and American, but also in terms of um, uh, religious uh, spiritual life on the one hand, but also a place where they had uh, what they call Dharma schools, like Sunday school uh, for education. They had sports uh, leagues and uh, social activity uh, at all of these temples. So it's a, it, it became a very robust, important part of this uh, fairly large group of Japanese uh, American communities in Hawaii on the West Coast. In fact, in Hawaii, uh, the Japanese, that, that 150,000 number, constituted the largest ethnic group um, uh, on the on, on the islands, so uh, this is a fairly substantial group, and there was some concern that uh, you know uh, a, a a territory of the United States like Hawaii was becoming you know if not majority Buddhist uh, substantially Buddhist, and uh, it, it 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 did raise some questions about what is America? Uh, is it a white Christian nation, or is it a multi-ethnic and religious, religiously free nation? Uh, these type of uh, questions are raised by this, you know, large immigrant and uh, second generation community. And then you said, for example, that uh, there is a bit of uh, uncertainty about how the presence of Buddhism in the Japanese uh uh, what that meant for the, the American identity and, and the future of America. Was this also shared on the West Coast as well? What were the attitudes of the general public towards the Japanese establishing places of worship and, and communities on the West Coast? Sure. So one of the uh, uh, things is it, on the West Coast, uh, that 120 or 110,000 uh, number of Jap- persons of Japanese ancestry was a much smaller percentage uh, in the larger, you know, uh, population, and so uh, they weren't seen as uh, a, in this quite in the same way as a uh, existential threat to uh, American identity. Uh, but at the same time, uh, California politicians. Uh, politicians in Oregon and Washington as well, uh, uh, you know, lobbied for, on the one hand, things like exclusion, right? So immigration exclusion. The Chinese had been already excluded in the 1880s, uh, and there was a lot of moves to try to exclude the Japanese. And by the 1924 Immigration Act uh, and uh, Naturalization Act, uh, the Japanese had also been uh, the primary target uh, to try to reduce the number of Japanese uh, on the West Coast. And so uh, there were politicians who were eager to either exclude them or if they were included to make sure they were 
uh, treated as second-class citizens. And so whether it was land ownership or, and this is, you know, for example, specifically in terms of Buddhist temple building and the acceptance of Buddhist temples uh, in Washington state, for example, they implemented a new law that said uh, for any religious corporation or any religious uh, uh, institution that wants to be recognized by the state uh, uh, as, as, as having a nonprofit status, they would need to have a majority of their board be white or Caucasian. And so one of the uh, difficulties that Buddhist temples face was to, to you know, if they were originally, uh, just like many of these groups, Irish Catholics or Norwegian Lutherans that I mentioned earlier, they tended to be a kind of, uh, their churches and uh, t- uh, or synagogues and so it tended to be of only one ethnicity. Uh, but in this case, uh, they couldn't even build a temple if they didn't have, you know, Caucasian members. And so uh, the flip side of the animus against Buddhism was that uh, there was a growing interest starting in the late 19th century uh, among a certain group of American, uh, uh, you know, citizens who came from a variety of ethnic backgrounds, but particularly Caucasian Americans who had interest in Buddhism uh, uh, through new translations of things like the Lotus Sutra or a new tra- new um, uh, artwork that was coming in from Asia um, or an interest in uh, things like meditation or uh, uh, even like esoteric Buddhism and that kind of thing. And so, uh, certain temples like the Seattle Buddhist Temple up in Washington, uh, they got around those kind of obstacles to establishing a Buddhist temple uh, because they actually had uh, a requisite number of, of Caucasian um, friends and uh, people who would actually, you know, volunteer to serve as a board member of the temple uh, because they were uh, genuinely curious and keen about learning more about Buddhism. And so, uh, there were challenges, but uh, even on the West Coast, uh, they had enough uh, supporters and people interested in uh, Buddhism outside of the Japanese-American community uh, that made it possible uh, for these temples to, to sprout up by, by 1941. And you talked a couple of minutes ago about uh, some, some aspects of Buddhism that might have represented uh, new aspects or new adaptations of Buddhism in America, such as uh, Sunday school, or uh, I forget some of the examples that you gave, but does this represent a certain readiness to adapt Buddhism to America from the very first arrival of Japanese in American history? Well, uh, you know, I think the, the um, you know, for example, in Buddhist studies, I think we, we used to, think about uh, when Buddhism moves from one cultural context to another, uh, that there's, on the one hand, a process of a cultural adaptation. And then another aspect, which is uh, that when Buddhism moves into a new culture, it actually changes that culture. Or or it's not just about adaptation, but about uh, contributing something uh, to that new religious landscape. And... um, uh, so we've had, you know, lots of discussions, for example, with China about the sinification of Indian Buddhism, or on the flip side, uh, wasn't it Zerker who wrote uh, the Buddhist conquest of China? Uh, that, that that there's this idea that uh, Buddhism can, on the one hand, be a force to 
change a culture, but also a, a religion that is very flexible and adaptable to different cultural and religious contexts. And so in the case of the United States, uh, on the one hand, Buddhism seemed to already be contributing something new in terms of new ways of seeing things, new kinds of practices like meditation, new kinds of community uh, gathering. But on the other hand, in terms of cultural adaptation, uh, I, uh, we've mentioned Sunday school, the idea of congregationalism as an American feature. Uh, it, you know, Jews started doing that uh, when they came to America uh, to meet uh, congregationally, and Buddhists also uh, did the same thing on the West Coast. And so they would meet on Sundays, and a uh, lot of Buddhist temples, in fact, uh, in the interior, not all of them, but many of them started even prior to the war, but this gets accelerated during the war, but even prior to the war, started setting up uh, uh, physically their temple structures in such a way that, in, of course, in front you would have the Buddha altar and uh, all of the um, ritual type of uh, uh, things that you would normally find at a Buddhist temple in Asia, but they would format the building in such a way that they would build in pews uh, and they would have at a certain point by the 1920s and 30s, they would have uh, organs in many Buddhist temples and they would uh, have what they called uh, sambutsuka or Buddhist, you know, in, in Japanese, uh, a, a Christian hymnal is called sambika, but or a Christian hymn is called sambika, and they would call it sambutsuka, like a, a like a Buddhist hymnal, and so they would sing songs, Buddhist gathas, uh, but accompanied to Western organ music, and so that kind of thing, uh, where people would adapt their Buddhism to what seemed normative in American religious life, that you would have a Sunday service, that you would congregate, you would sing songs uh, together in a service, this kind of thing. And talk, talking about uh, the Buddhist priests as reverends and ministers. And so kind of terminologically, structurally, in terms of physical look of the place, uh, some of these adaptations happened fairly early on um, and and what what the war did though was it accelerated that adaptation process very uh, rapidly because people felt that if they couldn't somehow prove that Amer uh, that Buddhism could fit into an American you know cultural religious political context uh, that that Buddhism would go extinct so uh, in the context of war that pre war cultural adaptation process got crystallized or, or, or accelerated in a certain kind of way. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about the war then. Um, could you walk us through the events that led up to the mass incarcerations, both political and social, and kind of show us how, uh, how things arrived to where they arrived uh, years later? So the December uh, Pearl Harbor attack of 1941. Uh, obviously, this was a big shock to the Japanese American community. It's a big shock uh, to uh, most of the American public. It wasn't that big of a shock to uh, people in military intelligence and planning. Uh, they had already 
uh, anticipated war and had war scenario uh, uh, plans set up uh, starting in the late 1930s, there was an assumption that the United States, especially over uh, the Pacific uh, territories, would go to war with Japan. So uh, military planners had planned for this for some time. But uh, there was a, a shock about just how much uh, damage the Pearl Harbor attack, uh, how, how much the Japanese Imperial Navy's uh, attack had, had, had caused to the Pacific fleet. And uh, the loss of life uh, was uh, obviously something that made... Uh, most Americans worry about this question of like, what if the next move is to come to the West Coast of the United States? What if the next move is that these populations, I mentioned 150,000 in Hawaii, 100, over 110,000 on the West Coast. What if they became like fifth column is uh, as had happened uh, with the Nazi or German uh, uh advance in Europe, uh, that there might be collaborators or sympathizers to those uh, military uh, moves, and that uh, the consideration of the Japanese-American population as a potential threat to national security was something that had been uh, in the minds of military intelligence analysts and planners for uh, some years prior to the Pearl Harbor attack. And so once it happened... Uh, the very first person picked up by the FBI uh, after having had created registries or lists of people to be rounded up in case of war with Japan, having had uh, put years and uh, resor- of resources in surveillance on Buddhist temples, the ver- very first person picked up, uh, even before the smoke had cleared at Pearl Harbor, was uh, Bishop uh, Kikyo Kuchiba of the Nishihonganji Buddhist Temple in Honolulu. And so uh, they had a plan in which uh, there would be a kind of selective internment of people deemed, individuals deemed uh, a potential threat to national security. But by the time what we're talking about, which is the mass incarceration of the West Coast Japanese, um, uh, you know, moving over 110,000 people is no easy task. It's, it's one thing to pick up uh, a handful of people that one might suspect as potentially a threat to American national security. It's another thing to be talking about over 100,000 people and forcibly removing them into camps. And so uh, between December uh, of 41 and February 19th of 1942, when President Roosevelt issued the executive order 9066 that led to the mass incarceration of the Japanese American population of the West Coast. There was a series of hearings that Congress uh, uh, held to ascertain uh, the relative loyalty, the relative uh, uh, threat that this Japanese American population uh, posed. And ultimately, uh, through these hearings, through uh, confidential uh, intelligence reports, uh, uh, through other kinds of uh, 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 proceedings, the government made a determination uh, that they would target not the Italian and German-American populations, uh, but only the Japanese-American population uh, to be subject to 
some kind of mass incarceration. Uh, specific Germans, specific Italian nationals and Japanese nationals as part of the initial roundup, uh, that, that uh, was a part of their original plan. But this new plan to take the entire West Coast of the United States, anybody with any Japanese heritage, including children living in orphanages. There were kids that were like babies or two-year-olds or five-year-olds who were yanked out of a orphanage, uh, for example, here in LA, uh, where I live, uh, you know, the, 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 the operator of the orphanage asked the U.S. military, do we really need to, you know, take these babies and, you know, five-year-olds out of our orphanage uh, uh, to go to one of these internment camps? And they were told uh, by the chief architect of the internment program, Colonel Carl Bendiston, if they have even a drop of Japanese blood in them, I want them in camp. And so it was a, it was a very totalistic uh, removal of the Japanese-American community, uh, you know, in a way that doesn't really make sense in terms of military necessity, because what can a baby or a five-year-old really do in terms of posing a threat to national security? But that's where my argument in the book is that it's this conflation of this community as being racially and religiously other and mysterious and ununderstandable and who knows what they will do and you know uh, they might be turned into fanatic like this kind of fear that had been stoked for years uh, with this idea of yellow peril and this kind of overwhelming of uh, America with all of these uh, Asian people that that fear kind of got caught in the moment of war hysteria uh, and I think that's what led to uh, this mass incarceration. And where were most of the internment camps located, actually? Uh, so there were 10 large camps, uh, in addition to the kind of high security camps, which were uh, located in places like New Mexico and, and uh, Texas and so forth. Uh, the 10 large camps where 110,000 plus people were placed uh, run by a civilian nation. Initially, they were rounded up by the U.S. Army, but uh, put in these camps uh, for the duration of the war uh, by a a civilian agency that was newly formed called the War Relocation Authority, the WRA. And these WRA camps, uh, they obviously, they wanted to have them in an area that was east of the Western Defense Command Zone along the wet Pacific coast. And so they were in the interior parts. They, for example, the desert interior part of California, there's one called Manzanar, uh, uh, in the eastern part uh, of, uh, of uh, Idaho, Minidoka, uh, and uh, places like Colorado, Arizona, in other words, the kind of interior in usually very inhospitable uh, desert locations. Uh, About eight of them were in those type of places, and the other two uh, were in uh, Arkansas, uh, Jerome and Rower, two two places that today are just like cotton fields, if you go there. Uh, But they were basically very swampy, undeveloped areas that uh, uh, they they, uh, formed two camps uh, out there in Arkansas as well. So 
the idea was to move these people away from the West Coast where they could potentially aid the invading Japanese uh, military and, and put them behind barbed wire and with guard towers in these remote places in case if they did escape, they'd be like, you know, walking for like five or six days in the desert before they'd reach, uh, they could really escape or anything like that. So they were, there, they were put in these places that uh, were hastily built, uh, remote and uh, uh, generally very hot during the day and cold during the night in the desert. And what type of living conditions did they experience in these, in these camps? So, you know, these camps had basically army barracks uh, built and families often had to share a barrack with uh, potentially another family or an extended family. And so privacy was one, you know, they had, these are people that just, you know, not long ago were living in their own apartments and houses and so forth. And now they were in these uh, 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 poorly built tar paper barracks in the middle of the desert with, uh, you know, very little privacy. Uh, they had uh, latrines and uh, uh, mess halls where they would, again, communally uh, have to eat. And, uh, you know, especially in the beginning uh, with the latrines, uh, they again, they were poorly constructed. They didn't have any partitions, uh, especially many women who found it uh, immodest to go to, the latrine without, you know, any privacy. These are like real issues for uh, many people uh, as they try to adapt to their new homes uh, once they were evicted. And uh, you painted a very stressful picture and I'm, I'm sure they were also very confused and enraged. And did they even have any mental space to be able to think about Buddhism or practice Buddhism while they were within these internment camps? So I think it's 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 uh, you're quite right that you know the first thing is if you're a mom and you've got a baby and you've just been told you have between a week and ten days to pack only what you can carry. So I usually meant a suitcase, um, and most people, you know, if you ask somebody even today, you know, what would you put in a suitcase uh, where you're going to a destination unknown, you don't know for how long. Uh, most likely uh, you won't be coming back to your home for a while. Uh, they're going to be concerned about taking, you know, uh, maybe bedding sheets, uh, 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 bottles for milk, like formula, like things that, that, that are just va- basic for survival. Uh, and so I think obviously that was first and foremost in the minds of most people that had to go to these camps was, uh, uh, how do, how do we survive this? And what do we take in that one suitcase uh, that we're going to be able to take to uh, some kind of camp that they're telling us they're going to put us in? Uh, and then, but I think, you know, in these type of moments are actually, by these type of moments, I mean, when you've been dislocated, you know, they initially had come as immigrants from Japan. And in dislocation uh, or migration, often that is the time when you call on your faith or your religious tradition to help orient you in a time of, you know, uncertainty, in a time of movement, in a time of dislocation. Uh, And in many of these people's cases, they'd lost everything they'd worked for. So in a time of 
loss and impermanence, a lot of people did turn to their Buddhist uh, uh, background and their faith to help, in some sense, guide and orient them towards their new re- new reality. And were they allowed to practice openly in, in these internment camps? Was that encouraged? Was that discouraged? What was the situation? So initially, when they went to these temporary camps, they called them assembly centers, while the main camps, the WRA camps I mentioned earlier, were being built. They had to first spend their first uh, three, uh, two or three months in temporary uh, quarters called assembly centers. And there, uh, they often had to live in these horse stalls and other kind of like temporary shelters that local racetracks and livestock pavilions and places like that. And so they tried trying to make do with what uh, they could to try to make their lives livable. But uh, as they were trying to do that, one of the things, uh, again, because the United States Army was in charge of this part of the process and, and they were concerned about subversion and behavior that might uh, be disruptive or uh, a threat to national security, one of the first rules that went into effect was that they banned meetings uh, that uh, uh, would be in the Japanese language. And so uh, most Buddhist services at that time were either uh, in Japanese or bilingual in Japanese and English. Uh, and uh, uh, suddenly they found that because of this new rule, they couldn't you know, assemble in the way that they had done uh, prior to the war. And uh, in addition to that, they had banned, the army banned and confiscated and found as contraband uh, any kind of books written in the Japanese language. So if you had a Buddhist sutra or if you had uh, books about Buddhism or any other kind of Japanese books with about poetry, whatever it was, they would confiscate it. And if you were found with it, that would be deemed contraband. And so uh, the only exception to that was a like if you had a dictionary that had um, uh, you know both Japanese and English words in it that was acceptable. And the other thing that was acceptable was a Christian Bible. If you had a Christian Bible that was written in Japanese, that was okay. That wasn't contraband. And so what that indicates is that for the American authorities at that time, being able to try to shift this population into what they thought was normative about America, which is Anglo, you know, Protestantism or Anglo Christianity, Anglo in both in the racial sense, but also in the language sense of like, you know, English speaking, they wanted to encourage that Uh, and and converting to Christianity. They wanted to encourage that. And so it was in that kind of context that people had to, uh, if they wanted to, continue to practice Buddhism, they knew that they were doing it uh, despite, you know, the disapproval of the authorities at hand. And so by the time they moved to the War Location Authority uh, camps, though, uh, many of them had begun to organize amongst themselves and say, uh, you know what, Um, even if our government believes that us being Buddhist is un-American, we as Buddhists are going to insist that, you know, what President Roosevelt at that time called the four freedoms, uh, that was, you know, his slogan for fighting fascism in Europe and in Japan. Uh, we, and one of the four freedoms was freedom of religion. 
and, and so they, they pointed out the contradiction of a government that would say, we are fighting for freedom against Nazi Germany or Italian fascists or Japanese military government. Uh, and, and, and central to that vision of American freedom is the freedom of religion. But then for them to say that Buddhists are unacceptable or Buddhism is an unacceptable religion for America, uh, this became a contentious issue. And ultimately what happened in these camps was that contradiction couldn't last too long. And so the authorities did permit uh, Buddhism to, uh, to uh, uh, be practiced alongside uh, Protestantism and Catholicism. Those were the three uh, officially recognized religions uh, in the WRA camps. Mm. And it sounds like, as you explained, there's a lot of preferential treatments between the Christian Japanese and the Buddhist Japanese. How does this also relate to the other Japanese faiths, such as Shinto and Tenrikyo? Right. So Tenrikyo or Konkokyo or these Japanese so-called new religious movements from the late 19th century that were Shinto-based, uh, they were often conflated with state Shinto, which was absolutely banned by the American authorities, not only in the camps, but under martial law in Hawaii. Uh, state Shinto was, uh, or sh Shinto shrines were simply closed down, uh, whatever uh, type of Shinto they were, whether they're state Shinto or uh, you know, folk Shinto like uh, shrines associated with local deities in Japan, like Kompira or Inari shrines, uh, those are all closed down. And Tendikyo and Kokokyo, uh, kind of new Shinto, new religions were also closed down. So there was an assumption that uh, among the American um, authorities that, uh, you know, Christianity was preferred, uh, Buddhism could somehow be tolerated. Uh, but Shinto would be uh, absolutely banned. And so there was a little bit of a gradation in terms of how they viewed uh, these different uh, religious traditions. Um, and, uh, you know, it, one of the uh, somewhat ironic things, they, they, in 1943, the administration in the camps, the WRA, they administered a loyalty questionnaire a questionnaire that was supposed to determine, based on your answers, how you know loyal you were to the United States. And depending on that, they give you different kind of points. And uh, depending on how you answer certain questions, they might allow you to leave the camp. Or if you answered in a certain way, they would actually ex extract you from that camp. And they had formed in late that year a new camp, a segregation camp for people that they considered too pro-Japan or troublemakers and kind of like remove them from the population. And that actually became the largest camp in the latter half of the war called Tula Lake, a camp in Northern California. Uh, but among those questions, question 14 was about their religious affiliation. And basically, if you answered Shinto as your religious affiliation, you were automatically uh, uh, denied uh, the ability of leave clearance and being able to move uh, to an area outside of camp. If you were Buddhist, you got minus points, uh, but not completely out of the question. But if you're Christian, you got plus points. And so, you know, the government itself 
had these kind of gradations, which they metrically measured uh, as a as an index to loyalty to America. Uh, so that happened before the war, that happened during the war, and it happened in terms of kind of release from these camps as well. And I believe that there was a, a bit of controversy around a few of these questions. Could you maybe talk about that a little bit? Sure. So in addition to question 14, which is about religion, question 27 and question 28 uh, were often the questions that uh, the authorities most focused on and in the community the most uh, contentious about how to answer. They, they were questions about whether uh, one would uh, serve in the U.S. Uh, military to show one's loyalty to the United States uh, or if one would forswear allegiance to the emperor of Japan. And uh, for many of the first generation Japanese nationals who were prior to the war, uh, you know, unable to naturalize, like unlike European immigrants from, you know, Germany or Norway or Ireland or whatever, uh, when immigrants like that came to the United States, they could naturalize and become a U.S. citizen. Uh, Japanese and other Asians were un unable to do so until the 1950s, uh, after World War II. And so certainly during the war and before the war, uh, if you're a Japanese national, you could be, have, have lived in the United States for, you know, you could come in your 20s uh, in the late 19th century and, and spent 40 years or more, you know, 50 years in the U.S., and you'd still be unable to, to become an American like other immigrants. And so for them, that question about forswearing allegiance to the emperor was a very difficult one because, uh, you know, they had no chance to be American, which meant that their passport, uh, you know, was Japanese. And so if they forswore that, uh, they would basically become, you know, stateless. And so I think, you know, they had, they had some questions and contention around, you know, answering yes to a question like that. And of course, you know, the, the military service question was also contentious because, you know, uh, for the, as I mentioned, two-thirds of those in camp were American citizens and so therefore eligible for the draft, eligible to serve in the U.S. military. And many uh, Japanese Americans had actually already been serving in the military before the war. Um, but uh, the idea of, you know, serving a U.S. military that had just put yourself and your siblings and your parents into these camps uh, without any due process, without any kind of constitutional guarantee of, you know, usually when you're put in prison, it's because you've committed a crime, that there's some due process, there's some law uh, legal proceeding that determines that you've done something wrong and you're judged by a, uh, a jury of your peers and you're convicted and put in prison. So for them, many people couldn't answer yes to a question that said, I'm willing to serve in the U.S. Army when it didn't seem as if the Constitution applied to their families. And so many people ended up answering no and no. And these are the people that are sometimes called the no-nos that ended up in that segregation camp called Tula Lake. Um, so despite that, of course, the majority of the population 
you know, with misgiving sometimes, did answer yes and yes. Uh, and, and that was the majority of the people. But uh, a good number of people uh, ended up answering no and no, and they were removed yet once again, dislocated once again in 1943-44 and placed in this uh, segregation camp, which was a higher security camp. Um, let's let's talk about practicing Buddhism or, or trying to survive and be Buddhists behind barbed wire. Were they ever able to establish places of worship? Were they ever able to establish unions between the various sects? Uh, how how different schools of Buddhism? Excuse me. How did this happen in this uh, unique situation behind in the internment camps? Um, you know, one of the things. Uh uh, that people had to do of, often immediately was uh, because, as I mentioned earlier, they could only carry one suitcase with them to these camps. Uh, they often, in that panicked situation, didn't have a chance to bring a Buddhist altar or a Buddhist statue or things like that. And so they would improvise and find wood in the desert, uh, find... Um, uh, you know, things in the mess hall that were crates in the mess hall and so forth, and use the wood, use the paper to try to create things like Buddhist altars so that they could have a place of worship um, and they could have uh, a situation where they could hold a Buddhist ceremony of some kind uh, where you'd want to have a Buddhist statue, you'd want to have uh, incense, you'd want to have flowers, you'd want to have certain basic things that you would have in a Buddhist uh, ceremony. And so uh, as as, uh, ordinary people and some of the priests started to uh, create the context for being able to gather like that. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, they they argued for uh, a place alongside the Protestants and Catholics uh, so that they could have a space, a, a designated barrack uh, a church, as they called it, a barrack temple uh, where in each of these WRA camps so that they could have a uh, place uh, not only to uh, congregate have sutra study groups, have meditation practice, have rituals, have uh, services of different kinds, memorial services, uh, other kinds of Buddhist services like the Buddha's birthday uh, uh, service called Hanamatsuri in April or Bodhi Day, um, the Buddha's enlightenment de- uh, ceremony in December, uh, or Obon, the Japanese Buddhist uh, kind of ceremony and, and festival in the summertime uh, uh, to welcome the dead uh, ancestors. Uh, these type of uh, 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 ability to kind of be able to maintain some kind of regularized Buddhist practice, maintain some kind of Buddhist calendar or practice, uh, this became a, a big part of the effort. Um, but of course, you know, they had one building for the Protestants, one for the Catholics, and one for the Buddhists. And so I think in your question, you asked about, you know, what did different sects do uh, if you could only have one space and uh, let's say you have a joint, you know, Sunday morning gathering. Uh, one of the early kind of um, adaptations 
of Buddhism in that kind of situation was that they decided that they would hold services where uh, members of the different sect, the Zen people, the uh, Nishihonganji, Nihigashihonganji, the, the Pure Land Buddhists, the uh, Shingon or esoteric Buddhist people, the Nichiren uh, Buddhists focused on the Lotus Sutra, that they would come to be able to try to practice together. And so uh, one of the first uh, uh, kind of moves that uh, they had to do in terms of adaptation in 1942, 1943, uh, was often to kind of come together. And the Protestants had to deal with the same thing too, because they only had one building, you know, Baptists had to get together with holiness church people, had to get together with Episcopalians. And so among the Buddhists, the biggest uh, contentious, contentious issue had to do with what do you chant uh, at a Buddhist uh, uh, service uh, when normally in the Pure Land tradition, you chant Namu Amida Butsu or Homage to Amida Buddha, or in the, in the Lotus Sutra schools like uh, Nichiren Buddhism, you chant Homage to the Lotus Sutra. Namu Renge Myoho Renge Kyo, or in the you know Shingon tradition or the esoteric Buddhist tradition, you chant Namu Henjo Kongo Daishi. So everybody had a different way of chanting, and so they somehow came up with a compromise that you'd say Namu Butsu uh, or Namu Shaka Butsu, things like that. Uh, shaka meaning Shakyamuni. Uh, and Butsu meaning Buddha. And so they had these kind of compromises to try to get along with each other despite different ritual, despite different uh, doctrinal uh, positions that they would hold. Uh, over time, uh, they found that that was, you know, a little bit unworkable. And but I think probably by 44 and into 45, what they did was basically a kind of like a parallel congregationalist approach to using the house of worship, where basically they said, okay, you know, Pure Land Buddhists will meet at 9 a.m. and the Zen Buddhists will meet at 10 a.m. You know, they kind of like use the same space, but for slightly different um, uh, kind of a diversity of, of, of Buddhist practice and, 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 uh, and uh, teaching. And uh, so, so that, that, that was kind of how they first got their foot into uh, uh, creating a space for practice um, and cooperating with each other, uh, but over time, uh, in a way, uh, being in camp, uh, you know, for a couple of years, they found ways to uh, be able to fully celebrate uh, the diversity of, of, of Buddhism that was represented in the community. Even though it wasn't always allowed, as you explain in your book, many Nisei or, or those born in the U.S. to Japanese parents volunteered for the war. Can you tell us about the role that they played in the war effort? Sure. Uh, the Nisei, or uh, American citizens of Japanese ancestry, uh, some of them had actually already been uh, uh, in the military prior to the war. Uh, but, of course, with Pearl Harbor, they were uh, uh, systematically uh, uh, excluded from service in the, in the military. Uh, but, of course, uh, in... Uh, the context of these incarceration camps, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, became a fairly contentious issue uh, was whether or not uh, they should be either uh, voluntarily or through the draft uh, serving in the military 
given that you know such service would involve leaving these camps and leaving behind uh, siblings and parents and and uh, uh, basically you know fighting for freedom when your own family is uh, uh, not free and so uh, initially it was not that easy to get volunteers but those who did uh, volunteer uh, initially served in the Pacific uh, as part of the military intelligence service Uh, these uh, uh, Americans who of Japanese ancestry who served in the Pacific had a very particular set of skills uh, uh, primarily because they had gone to the Japanese language schools which were most often run by the Buddhist temple they had this ability to be bilingual uh, including bilingual uh, enough that they could translate documents, interrogate prisoners, uh, 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 participate in code breaking. And so there's a group of uh, those, about 6,000 Nisei uh, served in the Pacific. Uh, 90, over 90% of that group uh, were Buddhists, um, in part because they tended to be a little bit more uh, uh, culturally, shall we say, um, uh, aligned with with uh, things Japanese, and so the 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 aspect that seemed most uh, suspicious to the U.S. authorities in the beginning became a massive asset for them, uh, and it is said that uh, General MacArthur's office uh, estimated that the war in the Pacific was reduced by two years uh, because of their uh, efforts. Uh, of these uh, linguists who came from the Japanese-American community. On the other side of the world, uh, Japanese-Americans served uh, in the European campaign uh, in Italy, in France, in Germany. Uh, And uh, they served in that context in a segregated unit just like African-Americans were segregated at that time in World War II, the Japanese-Americans were put in a uh, kind of segregated unit, but always on the front line. And uh, because of that, whether it was through the campaign through Italy or breaking through the Gothic line or uh, liberating the town of Bruyere or capturing uh, Rome, etc., the, 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 the uh, Japanese-American segregated unit were often placed in the most dangerous, uh, difficult uh, situations, and it earned them uh, the name the Purple Heart Battalion uh, in the media at that time because of the great number of uh, deaths and, and wounded in war uh, of that particular unit, which ultimately became the most decorated unit uh, not only in World War II history, but in all of uh, American uh, U.S. Army history. Hmm. And how did the Buddhist soldiers relate to their faith in the military? Was this even allowed to be openly practiced? Well, one of the things about serving in the military on on the battlefield is that when you see your buddies being killed or when you uh, are serving around uh, a life and death situation, people turn to their faith. People turn, whatever their faith tradition was, and it's no different uh, for those uh, 
uh, in these segregated unit, majority of which was Buddhist, or in the Pacific, the MIS, uh, in these uh, very difficult uh, life and death moments, they would uh, look to their Buddhist faith to try to help them uh, uh, orient themselves, uh, deal with loss, deal with death, and 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 so it was important for them to do so. And in terms of a public way in which they would serve uh, as 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 uh, as Buddhists in the U.S. military, one of the things that um, became a campaign among the soldiers, but also among their family members back in camp, uh, was the effort to have the U.S. military recognize their Buddhist religious affiliation by putting B, the letter B, on the dog tag for where uh, the, the affiliation would be normally uh, uh, stamped onto a dog tag. And so when that somebody you know, died on the battlefield, they would know that this person needed to be uh, treated to in a way that was respectful for that religion, in this case, Buddhism. At that time in the U.S. military, uh, there were four designations for letters that could be stamped, uh, P for Protestant, uh, C for Catholic, H for Hebrew or Jewish, and X for other. And just because so many thousands of Buddhists were serving in these uh, uh, units, they had a campaign called the B for Buddhism campaign, in which uh, not only the soldiers in the battlefields themselves, but their families behind the barbed wire in these camps wrote letters to the War Department asking for that designation, uh, as well as asking for a Buddhist chaplain to be assigned uh, to this unit. And in many other different ways, in some sense, through their service, uh, demanding a place uh, uh, as you know, equal citizens of the United States and uh, that their religion also be um, equally treated and recognized by the U.S. Army. And that effort uh, culminated uh, right at the, it was actually not until the very end of the war, uh, in, in, in the aftermath of the war, uh, that uh, the Beef for Buddhism campaign was successful and uh, American soldiers of Buddhist ancestry were able to uh, note that affiliation. But it was certainly a big part of uh, what, what uh, the World War II sacrifices that these uh, soldiers made uh, ended up, uh, in some sense, having the U.S. government, the U.S. military, acknowledge that Buddhists were indeed a part of the American fabric. You spoke about how there is, or you said that part of the campaign be for Buddhism was to try to find a chaplain who could uh, minister, I guess you could say, to the the Buddhist soldiers. Was this easy to find in those times? I assume that there weren't many people who had this type of training uh, back then. And if if so, um, if not, what happened to people before they found a chaplain? Were they buried as Christians? Were they treated as uh, as Christians or other faith? Or how was that handled? Uh, so there was a uh, back and forth on the question of a, attaching a Buddhist chaplain to the unit. Uh, among the military, uh, there were those who were uh, more on the l- legal side of things who said, sure, there shouldn't be any problem to 
uh, have somebody who's qualified, who is uh, both an American citizen, so it can't be the immigrant Buddhist priest, but it had to, had to be a Buddhist priest with qualifications that had earned certain kinds of ordination and had uh, received recognition from their uh, home sectarian uh, tradition that they were a, a qualified uh, a person to be able to minister to others. And so uh, among the Japanese-American Nisei at that time, there were about a dozen or so who had uh, primarily uh, uh, kids who had been born and raised in Hawaii, uh, but also a few on, in the continental United States, often the sons of Buddhist priests who had immigrated from Japan, they themselves in their teen years had been uh, kind of directed towards uh, becoming a Buddhist priest themselves. And in their early 20s, uh, they had gone to Japan, trained in a monastery in Japan as an American citizen, and had returned to the United States prior to the outbreak of war. And so there's about a dozen of these people. But ultimately, the army went through and, uh, you know, part of it was some of them were not physically fit enough to serve. Others had eye problems that uh, precluded them. Others had other kind of health problems. And, uh, and there was uh, the hope that at least one or two of them could make it through. But ultimately, uh, what we've learned is that there was also a sentiment within the U.S. military and the chaplain uh, corps uh, that it would be unwise uh, in this effort to uh, uh, present this, these Japanese-American soldiers' uh, service uh, as, a, as, a, as a kind of American, you know, a, a demonstration of Americanism if there was, like, it would be a PR problem if there was a Buddhist chaplain assigned to the unit and they would, might undermine uh, the effort to try to portray this unit um, that was serving very heroically in Europe as uh, anything less than fully American. And I think the idea that Buddhism was, uh, at least at that time, not considered something that would be in the category of fully American uh, became a stumbling block. And so uh, ultimately, two and then a third, uh, eventually, uh, Japanese-American Christian chaplains were assigned to the unit. And they, uh, some of them, you know, of course, also had Buddhist relatives and some study and understanding of Buddhism. So they tried to do their best, uh, despite being Christian and despite often having to resort to Christian services and, uh, uh, you know, battlefield rites uh, for the dead uh, for these Buddhists. So uh, it was, it was, a, it was a, a situation where uh, the majoritarian Christian normativity of that time uh, ultimately pre prevailed, uh, but not without uh, many soldiers and others, supporters, uh, trying to make an effort to, uh, to, to, to have the army recognize Buddhism as a legitimate American religion. And you spoke earlier about how, uh, towards the end of the war, uh, the military came to recognize the unique skills of the Japanese Americans as a major asset to the war and something that uh, helped, as you said, shorten the war. Um, and the military also 
apparently recognized the the sacrifices that they had made and, and didn't question the loyalty that they had uh, to fighting for America. Do you think that this somehow impacted how the wider American society viewed the Japanese after the war? Or was that another battlefront, so to speak, that they had to deal with? Uh, you know, the uh, I think American historians sometimes say that uh, uh, the military is often the place where, paradoxically, uh, social change and transformation happens uh, one step ahead of national conversations, either in the media or public opinion among the general populace. And so I think if you look at the case of African Americans serving in the military or Jewish Americans serving in the military and their wider acceptance in American society, uh, I think you could say that the Japanese Americans were also in that same tradition of serving often, you know, to the extent of giving up one's own life. uh, And that uh, service, you know, in combat units and recognition by uh, official military uh, authorities and the play they received in the media uh, back home on the home front. I think these are the type of things that uh, ultimately, eventually would come to uh, play a role in uh, garnering further acceptance of not only Buddhists, but also of Asian Americans in the, in the uh, <coughs> uh, landscape of the United States, including, uh, for example, in Hawaii, the political landscape. Um, a lot of these veterans that came back, <coughs> they would um, you know, uh, uh, come back to their, their pre-war homes, and especially after their service, uh, be quite adamant that they be treated equally as anybody else. And especially when they came back in military uniform, it was harder for people to ostracize them or to say that they were uh, the enemy or disloyal to the United States. And so what you find is that, especially in Hawaii, uh, a great resurgence of uh, pride in being both ethnically Japanese American, but also 100% American. And uh, you find, uh, especially in the Democratic Party, a major rise of people that would uh, run for office, uh, not only on the islands, but uh, representing, especially after statehood, the islands uh, uh, in Congress. And so, uh, and all of that, you know, you look at somebody like Daniel Inoue, the senator, late senator from Hawaii. Uh, it was hard for people to say that when you met him and he only had one arm because of uh, his service in the military, that somehow he was some kind of lesser American. And uh, so I think this this military service uh, part of the story uh, did ultimately play a role in uh helping people understand that the Japanese American community, uh, both Buddhists and Christians, were, were not a, a uh, you know, enemy or uh, a peoples that
that needed to be excluded uh, perpetually in America. Mm. And and as the war is coming to an end, those held at the internment camps are starting to be released and, and soldiers are starting to go back to civilian life. Where do they go? Do they go back home? Do they? How do they start life again? You know, uh, so some of these uh, uh, peoples, uh, as, as, as the war comes to an end, they're able to initially go to what are called free zones. So instead of going back to the Western Defense Command Zone, that, that area around the Pacific coast that most of these people lived in prior to the war, some people moved to places like Denver or Chicago or Cleveland or New York. And in some ways, the history of American Buddhism uh, also you know, developed because of that, because the Cleveland Buddhist Temple and the two major uh, Buddhist temples in Chicago that got built right around uh, that time, uh, New, New York uh, Buddhist Church up in on Riverside Drive, all of these uh, new temples began sprouting out uh, in the so-called free zone away from the traditional enclaves of Japanese Americans. But as they returned, but, but the majority of them did return uh, to the Pacific coast and try to rebuild their lives. Ultimately, though, uh, out of the 10 big Japan towns that existed up and down the West Coast of the United States, um, uh, very few were able to fully come back. Uh, And today, there's only three, one in San Jose, a small one, uh, one in San Francisco, one in Los Angeles. But those centers, urban centers, uh, did become hubs yet again for the Buddhist temple. Uh, The temples, uh, whether they were in these urban areas or you know, in Central Valley, these rural Buddhist temples in Watsonville and Madeira, these different communities, uh, they served as uh, uh, the term that was used at that time were hostels or uh, places where people coming back from the camp, uh, having been given, most people received $25 uh, in cash and a one-way train ticket. So that's, that's what they got as compensation for those years lost from the U.S. government at that time. And so they landed in many of these uh, cities and, and uh, even rural areas with, with nothing. Uh, and, you know, trying to find a place to live, trying to find a place to get a job, um, especially given the still rather live hostility against persons of Japanese ancestry was not easy. And these Buddhist temples uh, served as basically community hubs where people could uh, live temporarily, uh, exchange information about finding a job, and in some some way rebuild uh, not only their uh, Buddhist lives, but also their economic and social lives as well. But as they were leaving the, the internment camps, they, they didn't take everything with them. They left a little bit of their culture behind, literally in the soil. Could you speak about the Heart Mountain Mystery Rocks a little bit? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so this was a story uh, from the War Relocation Authority camp in Heart Mountain, Wyoming, where uh, a few years after the war, uh, as, as the land was eventually turned into uh, you know, new land for uh, 
homesteaders to come and uh, occupy. Uh, the government uh, hired contractors to clear out the brush, and uh, especially uh, near the center of camp, uh, they were doing a uh, cleanup job when this construction worker uh, hit something. And he was a little bit worried because it was close to the camp cemetery that he had somehow maybe hit a coffin or something uh, in this process of trying to clear the land for these new homesteaders after the war. And he, what he found when he looked more carefully was that it, he had hit some kind of oil drum, a large oil drum, and that his uh, uh, clearing machine had uh, cracked open. Uh, this uh, metal drum and look, looking more closely, he found these stones that had on, on every stone, one kanji or Japanese or Chinese character on them. He couldn't obviously read Japanese. They had no idea why there were these stones with uh, these markings. And uh, he had uh, delivered it to the homesteader who was uh, going to take over that land and that family, of course, didn't read Japanese either. So they had uh, in their in their barn a large uh, oil can, uh, cracked open oil can with all of these uh, stones. And over the years, uh, people who had formerly lived in, at that internment camp, the Heart Mountain uh, Incarceration Center, they, uh, you know, were approached by that uh, farmer the Bovee family, and asked, do you know what these stones are? And nobody really knew what they were. And so they got dubbed the Heart Mountain Mystery Stones. And what, to make a long story short, well, eventually a, a number of different scholars in a team were able to figure out was that these were stones that a Buddhist priest had uh, uh, carefully uh, written out a Buddhist sutra, a uh, section of the Lotus Sutra. Uh, in Japan, uh, in, in the medieval period, they had this tradition called uh, Ichiji, Iseki Ichiji, uh, one stone, one character, of using calligraphy to write out and copy the Lotus Sutra to gain merit for uh, uh, a future time. And one of the practices that they used to have, uh, especially in medieval Japan, was to, uh, they called it kyozuka or sutra burial practices or mounds, uh, where they would bury the sutra thinking that uh, the last days of Buddhism had come. Uh, there's an idea in classical Buddhism about uh, the Buddhism or the Buddhist teachings or the Dharma degenerating over time, the further you, away you get from Shakyamuni. And then when the world is kind of like at its worst, when it's collapsing around you, you have to wait for Maitreya, the future Buddha, to come. And so what these people did was they would bury sutras and the teachings of Shakyamuni until you know, the future Buddha came until a better future arrived for them. And so uh, I write about this particular uh, practice that 
a Nichiren Buddhist monk from uh, Los Angeles, Reverend Nika Murakita, uh, we presume, uh, wrote out the Lotus Sutra and uh, on these stones that he must have found in camp and put them in this oil drum and buried them in the ground. Uh, we don't know for sure if he was exactly thinking about the, you know, buried sutras of the medieval, of the medieval practice that uh, happened in Japan. Uh, but uh, as a Nichiren Buddhist priest, uh, his faith in the Lotus Sutra, uh, and he was also the calligraphy instructor in the camp. And so this idea of kind of copying the sutras, replicating the Buddhist teachings, and then burying them until a time, a future time, when a better situation for the practice of Buddhism might arise. That's what uh, I understood from uh, that particular, uh, you know, incident of, of this priest, we believe, who buried these uh, uh, stone sutras. And so, you know, I, 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 I end that story, I, I end the book with that story because it, it is a hopeful story about a future where the practice of Buddhism in America would be possible. But it's also, to me, this idea that the book, you know, my book is called American Sutra, and it's, it's this idea that uh, sutras are, you know, uh, texts that contain the teachings of the Buddha but until we kind of like unearth them, until we really uh, understand and uh, embody those ideas that are in the Buddha's teachings, uh, they're not actually manifest or actualized. And uh, we happened in this particular case to have been able to unearth a Buddhist sutra buried in the middle of a Japanese-American World War II internment camp. But uh, there are many, many uh, actualizations and stories uh, of Buddhist practice in the midst of all of this uh, difficulty. Uh, people finding uh, freedom and liberation uh, in the midst of uh, their incarceration. And so the, I, I titled the book American Sutra uh, to honor these people who uh, not only wrote stone sutras and buried them, but also wrote out Buddhist lives uh, in the most uh, difficult of circumstances. I think it's a really beautiful symbol of, of the hope that they had uh, that they could be both Japanese and American and Buddhist at the same time. Uh, and, and I think it's a really poignant symbol uh, for that. Well, I, I really want to recommend that everybody go out and buy a copy of this book. It was a really fascinating and powerful read, uh, and it's a side of American history that we often don't get to see. Um, and I, I can't recommend it more to, to the listeners. Uh, Duncan, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast, and uh, I hope to hear more from you on this topic in the future. Thank you so much, Alex. You've been listening to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. If you're interested in learning about other new books and Buddhist studies, head over to newbooksnetwork.com or search for New Books Network wherever you get your podcasts. Audio used with permission from Musique Delicieuse and is taken from the song Small Flower by Para Furcuva.